And open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. We started a series a few weeks ago before we went away. And, and the subject of the series is, is who is Jesus? And just so you know ahead of time where we're going with this and the purpose of all this, all this study, is I really believe it's something that God has put in me for me, first of all, as a way of making adjustments in our lives. None of us are perfect. If you think you are, <laughs> you're the most imperfect. <laughs> None of us are perfect. That means all of us have adjustments that we have to make. And it's interesting because as I began to pray about this, as God began, if I began to sense and see changes, this issues in people's life. I mean, there's just, we live in a society that's compromised. We live in church, that's a church in this country that's compromised the standards of God. And it's compromises all around us. And it's, 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 it's pulling at us all the time. And it's as if, you're, as if we're rowing upstream. And that takes work and focus and concentration. The easiest thing is to just let go and go with the flow of the times, the flow of our culture that's around us. But the, Jesus made very clear these two rivers, these two ways. He says there's two paths you can go down. One is narrow, and it's hard, but it leads to eternal life. The other is wide and easy, and many go down that road. So you think, well, why wouldn't you choose the road where everybody else is going down? You've got lots of company. Go down this road. It's easy. Why wouldn't I choose the easy road? Why would I take the hard road that's narrow that only a few people? Why do only a few people take it? Because it's hard and it's narrow, but they don't see the key thing. Isn't it important when you're going on a trip where the road's going? I mean, isn't it kind of important? Unless you're just out for a Sunday afternoon ride. It does matter what, where, where that road is going because wherever that road's going, that's where you're going to go. So you can't decide which road you're going to go down by whether it's easy or hard. That's the temptation. The temptation, oh, this is good. This is not the message, but this is good. The temptation is to make our decisions based on what's easy and what's hard. I don't want what's hard. I want what's easy. Yes. But Jesus made clear there's these two roads, but he's telling us don't look at whether it's hard or easy. Look at where the road goes. Because whatever road you're on determines where you're going to end up. And if you're choosing your road, your walk of life, by what's easy and what's popular, he said the road you're on is leading to eternal destruction. The road that's hard and is narrow. Narrow means you can't take a lot with you. And that very few people choose is the road that leads to eternal life. Learn to make your choices by where they're going to take you, not by whether they're easy or whether they're hard. Because in most cases, the easy and popular way is going to lead you somewhere you don't want to go. The problem is when you get there, it's too late. So wake up. We need to wake up and realize what road am I on? And how am I making the choices in my life every day? By what's easy and what's popular or am I making choices based on where it's going to take me? That one was free. Praise God. <laughs> Matthew chapter 16, but it does all fit together. Let's read it. Now, as before we read the scriptures, 
again, to give you some background, because it's been a, a couple of weeks since we've talked about this, Jesus is here talking to his disciples. These are men that knew him. He had already called them out of their regular life, called them out of their families, called them to follow him, and he called them personally, and he called them individually. So they've all been picked by him after a night of prayer. They've answered his call. They've been following him, and they followed him for some period of time now. We don't know exactly how long. What that means, they've heard him preach and teach. They've seen the multitudes gather around him. They have watched him deliver them supernaturally from disastrous situations. They've watched him speak to storms that were going to, that were going to swallow them up, and the storms obeyed them in, him instantly and were quiet. In fact, when he went back to the back of the boat, they looked at each other and said, what manner of man is this, really? Which means they didn't really know him yet. They knew him. So you can know people to different levels. This July, my wife and I will be married 44 years. We know each other a whole lot better now than we did 44 years ago when we thought we really knew each other. We thought we knew what we were doing. And now looking back, we realize it's been God's grace because we had no idea what we were doing and really didn't know each other. And the more we live together, the more we work together, the more we serve God together, the more we know each other. So there are different levels of knowing somebody. And, so, and that's really what this is about. God's method of bringing correction to us, God's method of bringing things in the right alignment is by not correcting us and saying, this is what you're doing wrong, although there are times for that. But what his method of doing it is revealing who he is. And we'll see how that works out. And we're going to look at some more examples today. So here's Jesus with his disciples, and he's about to ask them a question, and, and, and they've watched him raise the dead. They've watched him open blind eyes. They've watched him unstop unstopped deaf ears. They saw him one day as they crossed the river, the sea, and they got to the other side, and they went down this road in Gadara leading somewhere, and they saw a man there that was so demon-possessed, there were a thousand demons in him, that literally people would not go down that road because this man was so fierce. They tried to, they would lock him him up in chains when they could catch him, and he just, the, str the strength of those demons burst him loose. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but, but I've dealt with a guy once that had demons operating in him, and four of us couldn't hold him down. There's a supernatural strength. So they've seen him, and they see Jesus walk down the road that nobody else would walk down, and when this demon-possessed man confronted him, Jesus just cast those demons. In fact, the demons pled with him as to where he was going to send them. They watched this happen. This is the same group. And now we'll see this conversation that Jesus has with them. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And we looked several weeks ago at different people that had asked this question, from Herod to the Pharisees to, to, to the people in his town. People were asking, who is this man? They were trying to figure out who he is. Well, now he's asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And today, people have an opinion of who he is. Interesting, I was, um, on, we were on vacation, I was watching a, 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 a television program that involved, at one point, an interview of a very famous actress who's dead now, but if I mentioned her name, 90% of you'd know who she was, one of the most famous, successful actresses in the history of our, of our movie history. And, and she was being interviewed, and, um, 
and the interviewer, somehow they got on the subject of religion. What do you think of religion? She said, well, I think it's pretty much irrelevant. Um, she said, but however, I do believe in Jesus Christ. I thought, well, that got my attention. But see, her idea of that and yours and mine is, was not the same. She says, I really believe that he was a very moral man and his real value is that we can model our life after him. And I listened to that and I said, isn't that interesting? Here's a woman who's extremely bright, respected for how intelligent she is and how foolish what she just said is. Because Jesus didn't give us that option. Now listen to me carefully. Jesus said about himself, I am the son of God. He said he was the son of man, but he also said, I am the son of God. That takes away from us a number of choices, one of which she made. That takes away from you the choice that he was a good man and we can model our life after him. Because if he, somebody says, I'm the son of God, that's either true or it's not true. If it's true that he's the son of God, then he's far more than just a moral man. He is who he says he is, which means we have to get, govern our lives in light of who he is. On the other hand, if he's not the Son of God, and she obviously didn't believe he was the Son of God, if he's not the Son of God, he doesn't give you the option of thinking he's a very moral man to model your life after, because he lied. If he said he was the Son of God, and he's not the Son of God, he's a liar. Or a fool. Neither one of them are moral figures to model your life after. And what all that was is she was using him as an example. She was using him for her purposes, not submitting his, her, her, her life to him because she wouldn't acknowledge who he really is. See, when you see who he really is, you only have two choices. You either bring your life underneath him because he is the son of God or you walk away and reject him. There's no middle ground. You can't have him and not have him. You can't use him for your purposes. He doesn't give you that option. So when you get a revelation of who he really is, it shows you who you really are. And that's what we're going to see. And then God makes that adjustment in your life. But the adjustment comes by seeing who he is. See, the devil wants you to look at yourself and figure out who you are. And I don't know anybody yet that's changed themselves by seeing who they are. But your life will change dramatically when you really see who he is. Because that's where the power to change comes from. So Jesus asked this question to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, let's see what they say. Verse 14. Some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked the question. Okay, that's whatever the people, other people's opinions are, but who do you say? that I am. We began this series by saying that is the question of the ages. That is the one question that everyone will be asked. It's the one question you cannot avoid answering. You can't do what our legislators do when they don't like the question by just answering instead of yay or nay, just say present. In other words, I'm here, but I'm not taking a position. You have to take a position on this question. God forces you to. You don't have the option of saying, well, you know, I don't know. No, you either say who he is, because if you deny 
who he said he is, then you've answered for yourself who he is. And your eternal destiny hinges on the answer to this question. Notice he's asking his disciples who presumed they knew who he was. So God's taking us, wants to take us to another level of understanding and of focus on who Jesus is. Now notice the answer here. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, who was always quick to answer, answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mentioned to you last time, isn't it interesting what he doesn't say there? He doesn't say you're the Savior of the world, although clearly he is. John the Baptist, when he first saw him, said, Behold the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So he is the Savior of the world. He doesn't say that he is the, a heal, our healer. He doesn't say that he is our redeemer. He doesn't say any, because all of those are things he did. They're not who he is. I shared with you last time, it was, just became even clear to me over this last week or so while we were away, because we were on a trip and we were, ended up with some, with some people that we didn't know and they weren't Christians and we're just sitting around at a dinner table with them and, and over a period of, of nights and um, before I would have started out somehow by letting them know I was a lawyer because my identity was tied to what I did. So when somebody asks you, well, what are you? Do you answer with what you do? Or do you have an understanding of who you are? And I would have before, somewhere by the first or second night, let out that I was a lawyer. And, and they kept talking, you know, and they were, it, it, there, was, there was two couples that were related to each other. So we were sitting in a family discussion, basically, at this table with six people. And we walked out one night, and I said to Anita, I said, it's going to be interesting the night that they ask me what I do. <laughs> and that came, what, six nights? And then you asked me, you said it was your idea? Okay, we'll give her credit. She said it was her idea. Okay. <laughs> it's probably true. Isn't it going to be interesting when they ask you, what do you do? Because I didn't volunteer what I did because it's not part of who I am. I wanted them to know us for who we are, not what I do, because the moment they find out what I do, it changes how they see me. So they were very open with their family issues, and we just shared some things with them. It was very interesting, you know. And the second to the last night, they said, oh, by the way, what do you do? And I just smiled and said, I'm a pastor. And you could just feel the whole atmosphere change. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that what God says here, because we'll see it's God that's speaking through Peter, doesn't say what he does. He said, I want you to know who he is. See, the disciples at that point had seen, they knew what he did, but they didn't yet have an understanding, full understanding of who he is. Many of us have experiences with him. He's healed us. He's obviously saved us. He's done things for us. And our knowledge of him is through things that he's done for us. But the level he wants to bring us to is where we know who he is, not just what he's done. Because there is a difference. And that difference makes all the difference in this world and the next so let's go find out what the answer is. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice what Jesus' response to this is. Verse 17, 
Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the next thing we've seen here is that the knowledge of who he is cannot come by your own strength and your own ability. It has to come by a revelation that comes from God. Now, while we're away, I was meditating on this. I'm saying, God, you're going to help me, help me out here. Of course, he obviously has to help me out. I couldn't do anything without him. It's not helping him out. But you understand the expression. God, I need some help here because for my own sake. Because what you're doing is you're, 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 te- you're telling us the only way we can know this is if you tell us, not if we do something to figure it out. Okay? How do I get you to tell me? How do I make this revelation happen? And you know what? He didn't answer me. How do I get this revelation? Well, I found out when God doesn't answer me, that's often an answer. It's a time to go back and look at the question again. And we'll talk later on about some other questions that God's used with people. But, but I said, because what I realized, all right, if you're not answering, there's a reason why. So often it means I already know the answer. And the reason I saw was this. Why do I want to figure out how to make it happen? Because I want to be in control. I even used this argument on him. I said, Lord, it's not just for my sake. (laughs) But all these wonderful people, I'm telling them the only way they can know something they have to know is if you show them, I got to, you got to help me out here. It's going to be a real short message if I don't have a way to tell them how to get that revelation. That didn't help either. And then I began to understand. When you don't know how to make something happen, what do you have to do? You got to trust him. And then it dawned on me, he wants us to know this more than we want him to know it. So we've got to ask him and trust him to give it to us in the way that we need to receive it. And we're looking at stories of the way God has done this with different individuals, and in each case, there was a similarity and there are differences. The method by which God revealed this was different in each one of these cases. But the way what God revealed was the same, and its purpose was the same. So last time we went into Exodus and we saw Moses, how God did this with Moses. We saw Moses was a man that knew his purpose back in Egypt. He knew he was the deliverer, but he tried to step out and act in that knowledge of himself. And he had a knowledge of who God was because he was, although he was raised in Pharaoh's court, his mother raised him. So he was taught the law. He was taught the basic things that every Jewish young man would have taught. Plus, he was taught all the stuff Pharaoh had him taught also. But the result was he knew who the Scriptures said about God. But he tried to step out on the knowledge that he had and failed because he was stepping out in his own strength. He ends up banished to the backside of the desert for 40 years. I'm sure at that point he thought he had failed. He had failed God. He was an utter failure, having no idea that God was using that time to train him and to prepare him. Often the driest, most difficult periods of your life are those periods God is using to train you. It's really easy to serve God when everything's going well. 
it's easy to lift our hands and praise God. When the stock market's up, you're in the best job you've ever had, money's flowing in abundance, and everybody loves you, the kids love you, the dog loves you, you know. <laughs> the, the newspaper's there on time in the morning. Everything's just going great. It's so easy to come and just, oh, God's so wonderful. It's another thing when you feel like you've lost, there's no hope, and all you've got is God, and you can't feel Him. That's when we walk by faith and not by sight. And that's the time we grow in our strength, in our relationship with Him, because all the other time, He's doing it for us. And there's seasons of your life we go through. Seasons of our life. You have to understand there's seasons to your life. There's cycles to things. We don't grow just like this. There's cycles to things, and you just have to learn. To, to, and I'm not talking about, you know, getting in touch with the plant life and flow. I'm talking about God works in our lives in seasons of things. Jesus did that. He had seasons when he preached. He had seasons when he rested. He had seasons when he ministered. He had seasons of prayer. Different periods of your life are different things. And the Bible talks about those seasons. So, so Moses was now at a difficult time in his life, and he he's, turns the corner one day at the foot of Mount Horeb, just like any other day. See, that's one of the things. He was doing what he was supposed to do. This is one way. He was doing what he was supposed to do. He was in the right place. He was in the place God had assigned him, even though he thought he'd failed. He was where he was supposed to be. So he wasn't trying to make something happen. Sometimes people have trouble finding what God wants them to do because they're trying to make what they want to happen happen. And God won't be where you want him to be. He'll be where he wants you to be. So if God's called you to serve in the nursery, that's where you'll meet him. You can meet him changing dirty diapers. I start, my wife and I started ministry on the floor of a toddler room in Tulsa. That's where I started ministry, chasing down little toddlers on my knees. But God worked with me there. He taught me things there. And so God will meet you where you're supposed to be, not where you want him to be. And he turns the corner and there's bushes burning. We talked about this last time. It's an industry. The bush is burning and it says when, when he turned aside, God spoke to him. So the burning bush was an opportunity. It's when he stepped into the opportunity that God met him and began to speak to him. And the first thing God says to him is take your shoes off because this is holy ground. See, Moses had to be told to take his shoes off. Why? Because the image he had of God was not that of a holy God. Otherwise, he would have taken his shoes off. We talked about that last time. I'm not going to get back into how you dress. Just other than this, is the way you conduct yourself, including the way we dress, the way we speak, is an indication of how, what we think of God of our reverence for Him, of His... What you know of God will affect how you act around God. So we sing songs that I can only imagine. But I guarantee you in your presence you won't stand up. You can only imagine all you want. In His presence you'll fall down because everybody in the Bible always has. Stand up. Get up on your feet. Why? Because when you see His holiness... Well, we'll see clearly. All right. So that, that's how God makes these adjustments. So Moses is confronted with this and God reveals to him who he is so that Moses can begin to... Because Moses' next question is, but who am I? 
So God says, this is what I've called you to do. Moses' reaction was, who am I to do that? See, now his reaction is, once he sees who God is, his next reaction was, oh my goodness. And that's what God needs us to see. Because otherwise we try to do it in our strength. We try to have our, work our program out and get God to cooperate with it. But when you begin to see who He is, you realize the incredible privilege you have of serving Him. Now we're going to look tonight, today at someone else that went through the same experience, that had a knowledge of God to some degree, but in order for him to do what God called him to do, God had to make adjustments in him, and to do that, God had to reveal who he is to this man at another level. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Very familiar verses, good song we sing that's based on this. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, just to give you a little background on Isaiah, Isaiah was highly educated. He, he was... Uh, lived at a time when the kingdoms were divided, when Israel was, was, in, uh, was very much like the church today. Outwardly, things were very good. They went, everybody went to church. They paid their tithes. They did what they were supposed to do. They performed the sacrifices of the altar and all the things they were doing outwardly. But inwardly, their hearts had grown cold and had pulled away from God. And Isaiah was sent for a number of reasons, but sent to talk to them and a lot of what he says, I love reading Isaiah because it brings me back again to who God is. Because a lot of what he talks about is who he is. And, and, but before Isaiah could talk about who he is, Isaiah had to have a revelation himself of who he is. Now notice this is chapter 6. I'm going to go and read to you chapter 1, verse 1. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to because it won't take us long. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he, this vision was given to Isaiah during the reign of four kings of Judah, which was the southern nation once they were divided. And the first king that's listed there is that during the reign of King Uzziah, then Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. What we're going to see in chapter 6 starts out by saying, in the year King Uzziah died. What's my point? My point is that when this happens to Isaiah, he wasn't just starting out. He already had some knowledge of God. God had been using him as a prophet and God had given him visions and was prophesying and speaking through him. And now at this point in his ministry and life, God decides that he needs to make an adjustment in Isaiah's life. And the way he does it is what we're about to read. I want you to see the same pattern with Moses. Moses had some knowledge of God, but that knowledge of God was not enough. Was not, he needed adjustments in Moses' life so that Moses would be prepared to go to another. So if you go to another level of service, you have to go to another level of, of, of holiness. Another, every move up with God requires changes in you. Because he's bringing you to a place where you're more and more like him, which means you're less and less like you. 
To become more like him, you've got to become less like you. You don't lose your personality. You don't lose your identity. You take on his. And he has the amazing ability to give you, to, to take your identity, give you his identity, and you become more of an individual than you were before. Don't ask me how he does it, but he's God. He can do that. The devil just wants to consume you and absorb you into himself so you lose who you are. That's why people caught in, in lusts have lost all sense of identity of who they are. Their, 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 their full focus is on satisfying that craving that's got control of them. They lost their identity in that drug, in that alcohol, in whatever it is that has a hold of their life. It promises that it's going to make you know who you are better. But in reality, it will suck your life and identity away from you because the devil consumes, he doesn't multiply. God wants you to give him, give, you his, give him your life. And when you do, he'll give it back to you, multiplied over because you will have him at the head of your life. And so there's changes and adjustments. The closer you're going to walk with God, there are more things have to change in you, and you can't bring all that about. It has to happen as a result of Him. And we're going to see this is one of those examples. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting. Now, we don't know whether He was taken into heaven we don't know whether he has a vision in heaven or a dream. We don't know the means by which he saw the Lord. And isn't it interesting? He doesn't tell. Paul over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about a time he was taken up into, into heaven, the third heaven. He says, whether I was in my body or not, I don't know. See, when you get into the spirit, you don't lose, conscious, you lose consciousness of your body. He says, I don't know whether I was in my body or not. I lost total awareness of my body. So Isaiah doesn't even say whether he saw it with his natural eyes, saw it. He doesn't say, and if it doesn't say, it's not important to us. The point is he saw the Lord. And the word saw here, we're going to find out. See, you can see things and then you can really see them. You understand what I mean? You can see things at a certain level. Well, I know it's there. But then all of a sudden you see it. You have a deeper understanding of it. Isaiah knew who the Lord was. He'd been serving him faithfully. Now he's going to see him. I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up. And the train, which is the, 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 like a, a, a um, bride's, bride's dress, the train of his robe filled the temple and above it, Above the temple stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now don't get hung up on trying to picture this because understand we're talking about a human being being somehow taken into heaven and the opportunity to see what that looks like. Now he's come back and he's trying to explain to us what he saw. Now understand what that challenge is because... He's seeing something in the spirit that is beyond anything that exists in this natural life. So he's seeing it in the spirit, but how do you communicate things? Do you ever, ever have a vivid dream? I mean, where you wake up and it's so, you know, your heart's still going, boom, 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 and you're still sweating. Or it may have been a wonderful dream. You go, whoa, is that, how do I get back into that one? You know? And, 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 then, and then, you know, your, your wife or your husband says, 
What was that all about? Oh, what an incredibly vivid dream. And you go to find, you go to tell him what happens to it. And he goes, Foof. Why? Because the, the, when you try to, to communicate that dream, you've got to find words that are stored up in the library of your vocabulary that you can pull out to attach to what you're trying to tell them so that they, that they know what that word means and now it will mean something to them. Now, I don't remember. I've read somewhere that the, the total number of words in the English vocabulary is in the hundreds of thousands. The, the average human being probably has a working knowledge of maybe 10, 20,000 at the most, some far less than that. Um, uh, I've worked with some people that I think had three words in their vocabulary and none of them <laughs> could you say here. And, and so, but my point is, in order to describe it, you've got to go back into your library, your vocabulary, and say, what word most accurately describes what I see in here? And then you pull it out, and you try to attach that to this, and then you speak it out to that other person. Now, whatever that word means in their vocabulary to them is now what they think you mean by that. Do you follow me with that? Now, that's one thing to do over, you know over breakfast with your spouse when you're trying to reach an agreement on something and you're going like this because you, you know, women think one way and men think very differently. Women see things differently than men and, and just trying to bridge that gap is a major challenge. Imagine trying to do it with something in the throne room of God. So all Isaiah's got to do is try to find in his brain something that in his vocabulary, the cl closest he can do to describe what he saw, but it is not what he saw. So whether they've got physical wings or not, I don't know. But he's trying to describe as best he can what he saw. Just like Moses said, it was bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up. I don't believe if you went over and touched it, it was hot. I don't believe it was fire like you and I know fire. I believe that's the only word he could use to describe the glory of God that was emanating out of this bush. It's on fire and it's not being consumed because everything else on fire I've ever seen was consumed. All right, well, let's lead on to what he, what he sees now in this revelation. Verse 3, And one of these seraphim cried out and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the, Now, this is one of the angels speaking. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Call the fire department, the house is on fire. No, that's not what he's talking about. Again, it's the only word he could use to describe what he saw. He's not like these concerts where they blow smoke out on the stage to make it look, you know, kind of mystical or something like that. This is the glory cloud of God. Remember back in Exodus around 19 and 20, 19, where it says God came down on the mountain in smoke and in fire. One of the ways God manifests himself is a cloud. It can be described as a cloud. And I've known of people that have been servicing that saw this roll in like a fog bank. And I've experienced this here in prayer one night, not that vividly, but I saw, sensed something right up over in that area, like a, like a fog bank. So the presence of God can manifest as a cloud or smoke. So that's what this is, most likely. All right, let's go on. So Isaiah has this insight where he's seeing into the actual throne room of God. And look at verse 5. Look at his, he didn't have, this is not some theology or doctrine. This is his immediate response. 
Woe is me, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. What's happening here? Isaiah, that's why I said in the beginning, Isaiah was a good and righteous man, one of the most righteous men in the kingdom at the time. But that's in comparison to other men in the kingdom at the time. See, right, good, and bad are relative terms just like hot and cold are. If you're married, you understand what I'm talking about. That's why they have electric blankets with dual controls. Because my wife's concept of warm and mine are completely different. And so, because so, it's a relative term, it depends on where I am. So good and bad are the same things. I mean, I thought I was, that's what was keeping me from getting saved. I didn't know why I needed Jesus, because I was a good person. But then again, I was a lawyer among other lawyers. And I saw the standards that other people had, and I looked at my standard, and I said, well, you know, you're pretty good. <laughs> Having no idea that was pride. And one day, reading my Bible, I wouldn't say it, I was reading my Bible because I was searching for something. And I read my Bible, and I saw in, my, in, in Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the things we're supposed to do. Well, they made me a little uncomfortable because I didn't exactly do those. And then he says, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. I had a problem there. Because as good as I was, I knew I wasn't perfect. And what he did is gave me an insight into the standard that God measures us by when we're on our own. The standard God measures us by is himself. And he is holy and he is perfect and he's never sinned and can't sin. And I looked at those words, I dropped my Bible down into my lap, I literally said these words, if that's true, I'm in trouble, I need someone to save me. And then I heard my own words and realized that's why Jesus had died for me. I needed that revelation. I knew the concept that Jesus had died for our sins, but I didn't, it didn't mean anything to me until I saw my need for a Savior. And I saw my need for a Savior when I got a little insight into who God is. And that's what's happening to Isaiah here. Because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. That doesn't mean that he was walking around swearing all the time. Because unclean lips is not just cuss words. Unclean lips is literally anything that's not respectful of God and who he is. So when I walk around saying, I can't do this and I'm failing at that and I'll never amount to anything. And God's made me his son. My lips are not clean. I'm not honoring him with my mouth. We're going to talk about this later in the year because God keeps impressing on me more and more how important the words of our mouth are. Not to get under some law, my gosh, can I say this? Can I say that? Not at all. But the words of your mouth are an expression of what you believe in your heart. Jesus does say, by your words you will be justified and by your words will you be condemned. Not because you're saying the right or wrong thing, because your words are a reflection of what you believe in your heart. So suddenly, a man who thought he was pretty good, in all likelihood, a man who was very good compared to everybody else, sees who God is, and his first reaction is to see who he is on his own, apart from God. And he says, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. And notice now what he says. Now he's looking at you and me. 
He's looking around him and he says, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why do I know that? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away from you. Notice he didn't know he needed it, his iniquity taken away from him until he saw the iniquity that was in him. And the only reason he knew the iniquity was in him is because he saw who God was. So the revelation goes this way. When you really see who he is, then you begin to know who you are, and then you begin to, to receive what he's done for you. Your iniquity is taken away from you. Your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Now we're going to look at somebody else. Let's go to Job chapter 38. It's right before Psalms. Don't hear a lot of teaching out of Job. It's a very... It can be a difficult book to understand, and therefore there's a lot of strange teaching out there about it. The typical lesson that's taught about Job is it's about suffering, and there is suffering involved in it. While you're turning to Job 38, I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 1, because it gives us an insight. Here again, Moses was a basically good man who had a knowledge of God. Isaiah was a good man who had a knowledge of God. And now we're going to see Job was a good man because it starts out by saying there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and turned away or shunned evil. A little later on in chapter 2 or 3, God says that about him. He says to the devil, see my servant Job? He's a righteous man. So God, that's a good testimony God to have. God has that test. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It's what he says about you that counts. So God's bragging on Job. So he's a pretty good guy. In fact, it goes on and says he was the wealthiest man in, in that part of in the, in the Far East, in the Mideast. He was also, he sat at the, at the outer, outside the gates of the city and people came to him for counsel and wisdom. He was the most respected. And this is an important man and he's important because he's wise. He's also the wealthiest man. So he knows God as his source. He knows God as a blesser, as a provider. He knows a God who's given him honor. He knows God who has done things for him. And then Job has the most difficult day anybody's probably ever had. He literally loses everything in one day. From his children, I mean, the, the, the servants are lined up in order to give him bad news. You ever feel like one of those days? Read Job. They're lined up to give him bad news. And then when that's not bad enough, when he's lost everything else, his wife is speaking in his ear, just curse God and die. Just give up. I mean, even his wife is, is, is against him. He ends the day sitting on a pile of ashes with his nice clothes off with sackcloth on with boils on his skin. You know, when you get... When you get uncomfortable, it affects how you see things. It affects how you feel. It affect, and now the real blessing comes because his three friends show up. They've come to comfort him. And all they do is open their mouth and analyze what Job's done wrong to cause this to come upon him. Ever have friends like that? You don't need enemies when you've got friends like that. 
Now what happens is somewhere around the middle of it, Job's beginning, his, his own natural defenses and strength is breaking down. And now what's really in Job's heart is beginning to come out. And there's an anger and a bitterness that begins to come out of him. And he gets to the point, because I don't want to spend a lot of time on the background here. He gets to the point where he is so upset, he says, God, this is not fair. If you were anybody else that did this to me, and you'll see if you study the Bible, God didn't do it to him. It was the devil. But if, if you, if anybody else did this to me, I would have a right to call them into court, and they would have to give an account of what they did to me. Now listen carefully what he's saying. What he's saying is, this isn't fair because I can't get a sheriff to serve as a summons on you and force you into court. That means he thinks he's been wronged enough that he should have had that right to put, bring God into court. In other words, he's saying, you have treated me unjustly. It's as if you've broken a contract with me. In other words, God, you have not treated me fairly and the ultimate unfairness is I can't get you in front of a court where you have to get... Now he's talking to God. Where you have to give an account for yourself. You and I sit here in church going, wow, wow. but he's under that pressure is what comes out, is what's in there. Somewhere down in Job, he had developed an attitude that he was entitled to what he had because he'd done everything he was supposed to do. See, when you get mad back at God because you haven't gotten an answer to something, you're mad at Him because you're not getting what you think you've earned. I've done this. I've said these things. I've prayed this. I've been in church. I've been my tithe. I've done this. I've done this. How come you haven't done your end of the deal? Now, we've all been there. What that's saying is, I've done all these things. I'm entitled to something you're holding back from me. And what's unfair is that because it's you, I can't get you in court to give an account of yourself. So he has a knowledge of God, but he does not have a full knowledge of who this God is that has blessed him or he would not have talked to him that way. Now, what we're going to hear God does is not because he's angry, it's not because he's going to, bolts of lightning are going to come. This is the voice of a loving father jerking the slack out of a son. Father that loves his son. There's times when, you know, you know you're Denny and, you're, and I'm daddy and you know that. But there's times when it's Dennis or Jonathan, Aloysius, James, whatever, you know, and Father's voice changes and you get all your names before your last name, full name, full pronunciation, you duck. This is no longer Daddy, this is Father. Same person, same love, but he's changing the, meth the mode because you didn't take the word. He's got to bring it to another level of revel reminder that this daddy that's been playing with you on the floor is the boss. He's the source of your life. He pays the bills. I heard somebody the other day said their teenager came and says, Dad, I'm old enough now. I want to go out on my own. I want my own room in the basement. You're going out on your own. Is that right?
So you're going to pay the mortgage? You're, out on your own means the bills come to you. <laughs> if you want out on your own, the door's there. <laughs> you want to know what that's like. That's not what the son meant. So that's the tone here. Oh, we've got to move along. All right. Now what's happened is, as this discussion's going on with the friends, so-called, and Job, what happens now is, is God sends... I, I, I like to read this and teach this as if it's in a courtroom because that's what, that's what he asked for, and I can relate to this. So, you, you, you know, you've got God's accused by Job of, of, of treating him unfairly. So you've got God sitting at one table with his lawyer and Job sitting at another table, and God's lawyer is a guy named Elihu. So Job's on the stand... And Job's made these acquisitions. Now, God's lawyer is beginning to ask some questions. That's about 36 and 37, chapter 36. Now what happens in 38 is God tells his lawyer to sit down. He says, I'll start asking the questions. So now, and, th and what where this ties into in our study is God is about to reveal another level of understanding of who he is. Not what he's done. Who he is. Because Job doesn't know who he is or he never would have had that attitude. And this time, God's not going to give Job a vision into heaven. He's not going to appear as a burning bush. He's going to simply ask some questions. <laughs> Job's made all these accusations. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. So this tornado comes up to him and starts asking some questions. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And Job was an intelligent man. Now prepare yourself like a man. That's not good when God says, you better stand up like a man. I will, I'm going to ask you some. You've been asking these questions. I want to ask you some questions now. And you will answer me. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have an understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you must know. Get the sarcasm in that? <laughs> Who stretched out the line apart? That's the measuring tape. And to what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together in all the sons of God? That refers to the angels at the creation. Shouted for joy at the creation. That's what he's talking about. Who shut up the sea within its doors or its boundaries when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and the thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this is how far you'll come and no farther, here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning since the days first began? And cause the dawn to know its place, that it may take hold to the ends of the earth. The wicked shall be shaken of it. It goes on and on. Verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? In other words, where does light come from? And, and where is the place for darkness? That you may take it to its territory? That you may know the past to its home? Do you know it because you were born then? Ha <laughs> ha. Or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow and seen the treasury of... Do you know where all this cuff comes from, Job? 
Let's, if we have to go over quickly, let's go to chapter 40. The Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, answer it. Now look at Job's answer. At first, this looks like he's really repented. And there's a lesson in this. Because sometimes words of repentance give you indications that the heart is not yet connected to the words. Job's answer here is, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer. Yet twice I will proceed no further. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, because Hebrews is dealing with correction to certain believers. Starting in chapter 5, it deals with how to handle correction. It says there's two ways there that are wrong. We've talked about this a couple of years ago. One way that's wrong is to stiffen your neck and just rebel and say, I'm not doing that. Like the little boy standing on the pew next to his dad in church, and the dad says, uh, son, sit down. No. Son, I said, sit down. Doesn't say anything. I said, sit down. Nothing. Dad takes his hand, whoo, forces him down. The little boy looks at him and says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> that's funny if it weren't true for so many of us. That's one way. That's more obvious, just to say no. But the other way he talks about is to not faint. That means pass out. We had a dog, a cute little dog that, that died, and then so we decided to replace it, and our oldest son wanted a man's dog. So we went out and bought a German shepherd for him, German shepherd and collie. And this dog <laughs> was the biggest wimp you've ever seen. I mean, instead of being a guard dog, he would either lap the, you know, somebody up or run away and start terror. He would just, you know, he was just, he was just happy-go-lucky. So we decided to take him to obedience school because that had worked so well with a small dog. So I took my son and the dog to obedience school. Of course, obedience school is to train you to be obedient so that you can train the dog because you can't train the dog to do something you're not willing to do, but that's a lesson for another day. So he said, all right, what you do is you take the dog and you have him sit next to you and you give him the first command, which was sit. And what you do is, of course, he's not going to do it. So what you do is you make him do what you told him to do. So you take the choke collar, you pull up on that because you get his head up and you take his rear end and you force it down. You make him sit. So my son did that. He said, sit. Of course, the dog just kind of looked around like this. No! And put him like that. And he shook like that. And the dog just <laughs> collapsed. After looking at him, he just kind of collapsed into him like, oh, you have traumatized me. I'll never recover from the shock of the way you... Now, talk to me. I am so weak. I... And the, the, the director came over and he says, he's smarter than you are. He wants you to believe he can't do what you've told him to do, that what you've told him is so hard, he's just collapsed and fainted. It's just as much a way out as saying no. Because when God tells you to do something, he already knows you can do it. So to tell God, I'm so vile, I'm such a mess, oh, I never do anything right, it's just pride. It's an excuse for not obeying. That's all it is. And that's what Job's doing here. I'm so vile. Okay, God, I won't say anything then. I'll put a hand over my mouth. Ever see, child, children do that sometimes. They'll pout. All right, then I won't say anything. That's not, that's not obedience. 
And that's what Job's doing here. So we've got to move on quickly. So God has a couple of more questions to ask him. Because he's trying to get at the repentance. And the repentance is by a revelation of who God is. All Job sees here is God stronger than I am. That's all Job's gotten so far out of this. All right, God, you're stronger than I am. What can I do? He doesn't have the revelation of who God is yet so that he can take his copyright place in relation to who God is. He still thinks he's the same. He's just not being fair. So God has another round of questions to ask him. Verse 6. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. There it is again. And I will question you, and you shall answer me. And he goes on and hammers him again with question after question again. And all this is, is God wants to get a revelation through to Job of who God is. There's a similar discussion in Romans chapter 9. Not quite of the same level of power here where after the wonderful chapter on grace in verse 8, the next chapter deals with Israel and some things about Israel. And God, Moses, Paul asked this question. How, why is it fair that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and then judges Pharaoh for having a hard heart? A little earlier he says, why was it fair for God to get mad at Esau when God chose Jacob over Esau. Jacob, Esau was the first, they were twins in the mother's womb. When Esau was, before Esau was born, God said to the mother, I've chosen the second over the first. And, and then God judges Esau for the way he was. And Paul says, how can this be fair? And the real point Paul's making isn't to answer, he doesn't answer the question of whether it's fair or not, what he says is to ask the question shows you have the wrong attitude. The question is, why is it fair, God, that you treated somebody one way and somebody else another way? In other words, God, we're going to deal with you on the level of what's fair and what's right. We're questioning your, your operation in what's fair and what's right. It wasn't, Pharaoh did not get what he was entitled to because you already put in him a hard heart. That wasn't fair God. That means we're seeing ourselves at this, like Job did, at the same level of God that we think we can judge whether God's fair or not. And Paul's whole point he's making here is, don't you understand that you can't administer, just judge whether mercy's handled fairly or not, because the very essence of mercy is it's not earned. <coughs> Got another example. You put in your 40 hours of work, they give you a paycheck that's calculated to be exactly what your 40 hours earns you. You can thank your boss for it, but you got what you were entitled to. If you didn't, you have a right to get angry and upset, handle it the right way, and even take them to court if necessary, because your right was violated. You did not get what you were entitled to. On the other hand, if their boss also gives you a bonus, something you didn't earn, something you were not entitled to, but gave it to you anyway, that's not something you earned. That's a result of the benevolence of your boss's heart, whatever real motives were. But, okay, you don't have a right to go to court and take him to court because he didn't give you a bonus. Because he wasn't obligated to give you a bonus. That's something he did because he wanted to. And Paul's whole point is, 
Mercy is not something we're entitled to because if we're entitled to it, it's not mercy, it's what you earned. The very essence of mercy is you're getting something you're not entitled to and if you really wake up, you don't want what you're entitled to, you'd rather have the mercy. And all of it comes from a lack of knowledge of who God is. Of who God is. And that's what had happened to, to Job. Job knew God, what God did for him. God, Job, Job knew how God blessed him and took care of him, provided for him, and prospered him and blessed him. But he either didn't know or lost sight of who God really is. And God's questioning was to bring him back to the fact that I created all of this. Your breath in your, in your, in your lungs today, I put there. I formed you. I made you. You exist because of my grace. You are alive because I gave you the gift of life. You created nothing. I created you. He's not lording us over to say, hey, I created you. He's jerking the slack out of him to bring him back to the reality of who Job really is. Is. If we went on to read, we would say, now Job was in true repentance. He said, I have spoken words of foolishness. I didn't know what I was talking about. There's genuine repentance because now he is seeing that God that he was mad at is his creator and that God has been wonderful to him because everything he has has come from God and God can give it back to him again. In fact, the whole book of Job is considered to take about nine months of this man's life. He ends up being twice as rich and twice as blessed as he was before because God was the source. But the point is here, again, God brought him into alignment so that he could continue to bless him and prosper him. God had to take Isaiah and bring him into alignment to get things right in his heart and attitude so that God could take him to a level that God wanted to take. God had to take Moses and bring him to a place of alignment of what's right and wrong and what's holy and what's not holy. And the way God did it in each one of their lives was by giving them some form of revelation of who he really is. When it says, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord, the word in Hebrew there is Adonai, which means supreme authority and source. That's who God is. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. That's why his questions were, were you there when I made all this? Did you help me? Did you give me advice and counsel? No, you've, everything you have, you received from me. Because I love you and I'm merciful to you. I've not given you what you deserved. I've blessed you and taken care of you in spite of yourself. And the ultimate proof of that, of course, is Jesus. He sends Jesus. But in Job's life, is instead of judging him, he has mercy upon him to bring him to a revelation of the truth. And I believe that that's what this study, God is going to do in the study we have of who Jesus is, is to bring this revelation into our lives to bring us to a place where God can bring, to bring us to another level. And that only level, we can only come there with a greater understanding of who Jesus really is. He's Savior. He's Healer. He's Prosperer. He does all of those things. But we're going to find out who He is, not just what He's done. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity that You give to us we recognize, Lord, there's nothing we can do to make this happen. 
But we can come to you and your word says that if we ask you, you will give. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. And so, Father, we come to ask you to begin to give us the revelation that we need of who Jesus is in our lives. Lord, this week, may you come into those private times. Maybe it's in the shower, maybe it's driving the car alone, wherever it may be that you know best. And something may trigger an insight, whatever it is you choose to do. But Lord, this week, would you begin to give us that revelation of who Jesus is for us. For we desperately need to know him at that level. Thank you that you promised to do this if we ask you. And so we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we change the order of the service, I want to ask this question. Anyone here this morning?